Part Seven of the History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume Three, by Friedrich Schiller, translated by Reverend A. J. W. Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Pappenheim died the next day of his wounds at Leipzig, an irreparable loss to the imperial army, which the brave warrior had so often led on to victory. The Battle of Prague, where together with Wallenstein he was present as colonel, was the beginning of his heroic career. Dangerously wounded with a few troops, he made an impetuous attack on a regiment of the enemy, and lay for several hours mixed with the dead upon the field beneath the weight of his horse, till he was discovered by some of his own men in plundering. With a small force he defeated in three different engagements, the rebels in Upper Austria, though 40,000 strong. At the Battle of Leipzig he for a long time delayed the defeat of Tilly by his bravery, and led the arms of the emperor on the Elbe and the Weser to victory. The wild impetuous fire of his temperament, which no danger, however apparent, could cool or impossibilities check, made him the most powerful man of the imperial force, but unfitted him for acting at its head. The Battle of Leipzig, if Tilly may be believed, was lost through his rash ardor. At the destruction of Magdeburg his hands were deeply steeped in blood. War rendered savage and ferocious his disposition, which had been cultivated by youthful studies and various travels. On his forehead, two red streaks like swords were perceptible, with which nature had marked him at his very birth. Even in his later years, these became visible as often as his blood was stirred by passion, and superstition easily persuaded itself that the future destiny of the man was thus impressed upon the forehead of the child. As a faithful servant of the House of Austria, he had the strongest claims on the gratitude of both its lines, but he did not survive to enjoy the most brilliant proof of their regard. A messenger was already on its way from Madrid, bearing to him the order of the Golden Fleece, when death overtook him at Leipzig. Though Tadeum, in all Spanish and Austrian lands, was sung in honor of a victory, Wallenstein himself, by the haste with which he quitted Leipzig, and soon after all Saxony, and by renouncing his original design of fixing there his winter quarters, openly confessed his defeat. It is true he made one more feeble attempt to dispute, even in his flight, the honor of victory, by sending out his Croats next morning to the field, but the sight of the Swedish army drawn up in order of battle immediately dispersed these flying bands, and Duke Bernard, by keeping possession of the field, and soon after by the capture of Leipzig, maintained indisputably his claim to the title of victor. But it was a dear conquest, a dear triumph. It was not till the fury of the contest was over that the full weight of the loss sustained was felt, and the shout of triumph died away into a silent gloom of despair. He who had led them to the charge returned not with them. There he lay upon the field which he had won, mingled with the dead bodies of the common crowd. After a long and almost fruitless search, the corpse of the king was discovered not far from the great stone which, for a hundred years before, had stood between Lutzen and the canal, and which, from the memorable disaster of that day, still bears the name of the Stone of the Swede. Covered with blood and wounds, so as scarcely to be recognized, trampled beneath the horse's hoofs, stripped by the rude hands of plunderers of its ornaments and clothes, his body was drawn from beneath a heap of dead, conveyed to Wessenfels, and there delivered up to the lamentations of his soldiers 
and the last embraces of his queen. The first tribute had been paid to revenge, and blood had atoned for the blood of the monarch, but now affection assumes its rights, and tears of grief must flow for the man. The universal sorrow absorbs all individual woes. The general, still stupefied by the unexpected blow, stood speechless and motionless around his bear, and no one trusted himself enough to contemplate the full extent of their loss. The emperor, we are told by Kevinuller, showed symptoms of deep and apparently sincere feeling at the sight of the king's doublet stained with blood, which had been stripped from him during the battle and carried to Vienna. Willingly, said he, would I have granted to the unfortunate prince a longer life and a safe return to his kingdom had Germany been at peace. But when a trait, which is nothing more than a proof of a yet lingering humanity, and which a mere regard to appearances and even self-love would have extorted from the most insensible, and the absence of which could exist only in the most inhuman heart, has, by a Roman Catholic writer of modern times and acknowledged merit, been made the subject of the highest eulogium, and compared with the magnanimous tears of Alexander for the fall of Darius, our distrust is excited of the other virtues of the writer's hero, and what is worse, of his own ideas of moral dignity. But even such praise, whatever its amount, is much for one whose memory his biographer has to clear from the suspicion of being privy to the assassination of a king. It was scarcely to be expected that the strong leaning of mankind to the marvelous would lead to the common course of nature the glory of ending the career of Gustavus Adolphus. The death of so formidable a rival was too important an event for the emperor not to excite in his bitter opponent a ready suspicion that what was so much to his interests was also the result of his instigation. For the execution, however, of this dark deed, the emperor would require the aid of a foreign arm, and this it was generally believed he had found in Francis Albert, Duke of Saxe-Lauenburg. The rank of the latter permitted him a free access to the king's person, while at the same time seemed to place him above the suspicion of so foul a deed. The prince, however, was in fact not incapable of this atrocity, and he had, moreover, sufficient motives for its commission. Francis Albert, the youngest of four sons of Francis II, Duke of Lauenburg, and related by the mother's side to the race of Vasa, had in his early years found a most friendly reception at the Swedish court. Some offense which he had committed against Gustavus Adolphus was, it is said, repaid by this fiery youth with a box on the ear which, though immediately repented of and amply apologized for, laid the foundation of an irreconcilable hate in the vindictive heart of the duke. Francis Albert subsequently entered the imperial service, where he rose to the command of a regiment and formed a close intimacy with Wallenstein, and condescended to be the instrument of a secret negotiation with the Saxon court, which did little honor to his rank. Without any sufficient cause being assigned, he suddenly quitted the Austrian service, and appeared in the king's camp at Nuremberg to offer his services as a volunteer. By his show of zeal for the Protestant cause, and prepossessing and flattering deportment, he gained the heart of the king who, warned in vain by Oxenstiern, continued to lavish his favor and friendship on this suspicious newcomer. The Battle of Lutzen soon followed, in which Francis Albert, like an evil genius, kept close to the king's side and did not leave him till he fell. He owed, it was thought, his own safety amidst the fire of the enemy to a green sash which he wore 
the color of the imperialists. He was at any rate the first to convey to his friend Wallenstein the intelligence of the king's death. After the battle, he exchanged the Swedish service for the Saxon, and after the murder of Wallenstein, being charged with being an accomplice of that general, he only escaped the sword of justice by abjuring his faith. His last appearance in life was as commander of an imperial army in Silesia, where he died of the wounds he had received before Schweindenitz. It requires some effort to believe in the innocence of a man who had run through a career like this of the act charged against him, but however great may be the moral and physical possibility of his committing such a crime, it must still be allowed that there are no certain grounds for imputing it to him. Gustavus Adolphus, it is well known, exposed himself to danger, like the meanest soldier in his army, and where thousands fell, he too might naturally meet his death. How it reached him remains indeed buried in mystery, but there, more than anywhere, does the maxim apply, that where the ordinary course of things is fully sufficient to account for the fact, the honor of human nature ought not to be stained by any suspicion of moral atrocity. But by whatever hand he fell, his extraordinary destiny must appear a great interposition of providence. History, too often confined to the ungrateful task of analyzing the uniform play of human passions, is occasionally rewarded by the appearance of events which strike like a hand from heaven into the nicely adjusted machinery of human plans and carry the contemplative mind to a higher order of things. Of this kind is the sudden retirement of Gustavus Adolphus from the scene, stopping for a time the whole movement of the political machine and disappointing all the calculations of human prudence. Yesterday the very soul, the great and animating principle of his own creation, today struck unpitiably to the ground in the very midst of his eagle flight untimely torn from a whole world of great designs and from the ripening harvest of his expectations he left his bereaved party disconsolate and the proud edifice of his past greatness sunk into ruins the protestant party had identified its hopes with its invincible leader and scarcely can it now separate them from him with him they now fear all good fortune is buried but it was no longer the benefactor of germany who fell at lutzen the beneficent part of his career Gustavus Adolphus had already terminated, and now the greatest service which he could render to the liberties of Germany was to die. The all-engrossing power of an individual was at an end, but many came forward to assay their strength, the equivocal assistance of an overpowerful protector gave place to a more noble self-exertion on the part of the estates, and those who were formerly the mere instruments of this aggrandizement now began to work for themselves. They now looked to their own exertions for the emancipation, which could not be received without danger from the hand of the mighty, and the Swedish power, now incapable of striking into the oppressor, was henceforth restricted to the more modest part of an ally. The ambition of the Swedish monarch aspired unquestionably to establish a power within Germany, and to attain a firm footing in the center of the empire, which was inconsistent with the liberties of the estates. His aim was the imperial crown, and this dignity, supported by his power and maintained by his energy and activity, would in his hands be liable to more abuse than it had ever been feared from the house of Austria. Born in a foreign country, educated in the maxims of arbitrary power, and by principles and enthusiasm a determined enemy to popery, he was ill-qualified to maintain inviolate 
the constitution of the German states, or to respect their liberties. The coercive homage with Augsburg, with many other cities, was forced to pay to the Swedish crown, bespoke the conqueror, rather than the protector of the empire. And this town, prouder of the title of a royal city, than of the higher dignity of the freedom of the empire, flattered itself with the anticipation of becoming the capital of his future kingdom. His ill-disguised attempts upon the electorate of Mentz, which he first intended to bestow upon the elector of Brandenburg, as the dower of his daughter Christina, and afterwards destined for his chancellor and friend Oxenstiern, evinced plainly what liberties he was disposed to take with the constitution of the empire. His allies, the Protestant princes, had claims on his gratitude which could be satisfied only at the expense of their Roman Catholic neighbors, and particularly of the immediate ecclesiastical chapters, and it seems probable a plan was early formed for dividing the conquered provinces after the precedent of the barbarian hordes who overran the German Empire, as a common spoil among the German and Swedish confederates. In his treatment of the elector Palatine, he entirely belied the magnanimity of a hero and forgot the sacred character of a protector. The palatinate was in his hands, and the obligations both of justice and honor demanded its full and immediate restoration to the legitimate sovereign. But by a subtlety unworthy of a great mind, and disgraceful to the honorable title of protector of the oppressed, he eluded that obligation. He treated the palatinate as a conquest wrested from the enemy, and thought that this circumstance gave him a right to deal with it as he pleased. He surrendered it to the elector as a favor, not as a debt, and that too as a Swedish fief, fettered by conditions which diminished half its value, and degraded this unfortunate prince into a humble vassal of Sweden. One of these conditions obliged the elector, after the conclusion of the war, to furnish, along with the other princes, his contribution towards the maintenance of the Swedish army, a condition which plainly indicates the fate which, in the event of the ultimate success of the king, awaited Germany. His sudden disappearance secured the liberties of Germany and saved his reputation, while it probably spared him the mortification of seeing his own allies in arms against him, and all the fruits of his victories torn from him by a disadvantageous peace. Saxony was already disposed to abandon him. Denmark viewed his success with alarm and jealousy, and even France, the firmest and most potent of his allies, terrified at the rapid growth of his power and the imperious tone which he assumed, looked around at the very moment he passed the Lech for foreign alliances in order to check the progress of the Goths and restore to Europe the balance of power. End of Part 7 Recording by Alan Winterout Audio.boomcoach.com End of The History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 3, by Friedrich Schiller. Translated by Rev. A. J. W. Morrison.